Hello and welcome to the third episode of our new radio show, A Republic to Keep. I'm your host, Liam Bauer, and thank you all for joining us today. On this episode, we are going to be focusing on the COVID-19 vaccine in the United States and how the U.S. vaccine rollout compares to other countries around the world. We have several guests with us today, so let's go around for some introductions. Dave? Uh, yeah, my name is Dave. I graduated from Marquette in 2020 with a degree in political science. Glad to be here, Liam. Thank you, Dave. And Brian? Hi, my name is Brian. I graduated in 2020 from Marquette also, and I'm currently a 2L at Marquette Law School. And Henry? Hi, my name is Henry. I also graduated from Marquette in 2020 with my degree in biomedical sciences, and I'll be starting medical school in the fall. Thank you guys for being here. So first, let's get some background about the COVID-19 vaccine. On December 31st, 2019, the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission reported a cluster of pneumonia cases in the city of Wuhan, China. However, the disease that the commission confused with pneumonia would turn out to be one of the most infectious in history, plunging the world into the worst global pandemic in 100 years. This disease is, of course, COVID-19. On January 19, 2020, a 35-year-old man in Seattle was found to have the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in the United States. The virus quickly ravaged countries across the world and forced governments to impose lockdowns, social distancing, and mask requirements. Along with preventative measures, the United States government announced Operation Warp Speed on May 15, 2020, to create a vaccine for this virus. By December 2020, Operation Warp Speed spent $12.4 billion for vaccine development and manufacturing, largely funded by the Congress's CARES Act. On December 11, 2020, the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA, issued emergency youth authorization for, for the German-funded Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. Seven days later, on December 18th, the FDA issued emergency use authorization for the Moderna vaccine, funded by Operation Warp Speed. Today, Johnson & Johnson's one-dose vaccine received emergency use authorization on February 27th by the FDA. The speed of development for the COVID-19 vaccine is unparalleled in medical history. While it normally takes about 5 to 10 years to develop a vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine took just 11 months. Currently, the United States is vaccinating an average of 1.5 million individuals per day, and the vaccination rate is expected to reach over 3 million per day by April. The Biden administration recently announced that every American who wants a vaccine should be able to get one by July of this year. As of today, over 47 million people have received at least one dose in the United States. Despite the uptick in vaccinations, many report having trouble registering for a vaccine appointment online, and there is some confusion about who is eligible, as prioritized groups of vaccine recipients differ by state. Further, 22% of Americans report they would decline the vaccine, and roughly one-third of active-duty military and National Guard personnel have declined a vaccine when offered. 
There are varying estimates as to when the United States will reach the approximately 70% herd immunity threshold, with estimations ranging from late spring of this year to the beginning of 2022. The United States has just passed a grim milestone of over 500,000 COVID-related deaths and has experienced over 28 million confirmed infections, more than any other country in the world. Although cases and hospitalizations are declining, efficient and widespread distribution of the vaccine is needed across the United States. To start our discussion, I would like to ask the group, overall, how would you rate the United States COVID-19 response and the vaccine rollout? Before we get to that, though, I just want to tell all our viewers, if you would like to call in and Join the discussion with us. Please go on your phone and dial 414-288-3916. Once again, that number is 414-288-3916. And we'll repeat that throughout the show. But if you guys have a comment out there, a question, just come in and join the discussion. So once again, group, to start off our discussion, Overall, how would you rate the United States COVID-19 response and the vaccine rollout? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> all right. So I don't know if you're looking for like a number or something like that. but <laughs> One out of ten, whatever you would like ten, to do. Yeah, like a four and a half. No. Um, <laughs> I think that this is a good question. I think that maybe I'm getting too much into the rabbit hole to start off with. And someone can definitely take us in a different direction. Uh, but I think it's going fairly well. Um, I know that I've heard that it's maybe a little bit slower as, um, you know, that, uh, than we'd like. But one thing that I think the United States could work on is definitely the tiering of, you know, the 1A, 1B different priority groups, uh, kind of work on that. And we can get into that later, but I want to hear from the rest of the group before we do. If I actually may interject on this one. Yep. So... I think it's a bit complicated to say the least. I think uh, when we had President Trump in office, I don't think he handled it in the best way possible with the political uh, politicalization of wearing masks. And kind of before that, really the assault on the Affordable Care Act and and really the Republican Party as a whole having more anti-vaccine tendencies compared to the Democratic Party. So I think leading up to when COVID-19 became an actual threat in the United States, I think we were kind of right for us really not being uh, necessarily prepared. So that's kind of uh, my take. I think so far President Biden has done a decent job of at least trying to de-escalate the situation. I am concerned, though, uh, with vaccine inequities uh, between the minority groups in America, especially with black, brown, and uh, LGBTQ plus communities. But on top of that, uh, really just the amount of people who say like, they're not interested in taking a vaccine, how that plays a role in uh, us achieving uh, herd immunity in this country. Mm-hmm. And there are definitely pretty stark dis- uh, disparities, both in infection rates for COVID-19 by uh, ethnicities, but also in vaccination rates. I believe the last I've seen um, for African-Americans, 6% of all vaccine doses that have been administered have gone to African-Americans when blacks represent roughly 13.4% of Americans. So there are definitely disparities. However, one group has 
uh, of one ethnic group in the United States has excelled. That is the Native American population. So the Native American population or the tribal nations have so, uh, have a good amount of sovereignty in the government, usually more so than states, and it allows them to prioritize who gets the vaccine force and make their own categories for that. Native Americans have actually prioritized out their elders who usually speak their native language and have a much better handle on the native customs. This has led to a much higher rate of vaccinations for the Native American population. For instance, almost one-third of citizens in the Navajo Nation, which is in northeast Arizona, have always received one shot of the COVID vaccine. One big thing also is that the, um, the acceptance of this vaccine by the elders has been very high in these Native American communities. This is because they've tailored their message, stressing that Native American communities have a duty to their community to get this vaccine to stop the spread. And that has been very successful. They've also done broadcasts in native languages about the vaccine and reached out personally via mail to individuals who are prioritized. So I think it, they have really stepped up in the Native American community. And have, although they have that sovereignty, there has been a big push at the individual level to get people vaccinated, which I think really needs to happen also for the minority populations of the United States. Um, if I could ask a question, I have not personally seen any sort of uh, like literature or anything pushing for getting vaccinated uh, in communities that I'm in, but have you, Liam, seen any through your research of a sort of effort like that um, in like more urban, um, uh, more urban places in any place in the United States? I have seen it was it's mostly through individuals and public figures. Certain uh, minority members of Congress, for instance, have come out in videos saying they will get the vaccine. Barack Obama also got the vaccine publicly. So did Joe Biden. So and so did Kamala Harris. So these public figures do make an impact. However, there's also been a outpour of vaccine selfies in which people post themselves getting a vaccine, which I think is very powerful. Yes. It does make a difference that this public figure is getting the vaccine. But if, I don't know, let's say I would be, let's say I am skeptical about getting the vaccine, but I see a trusted friend get it, or I see a professor that I really trust get it, or my parents get it, then I might lose the skepticism that much more. So I think that really hits home to see the personal friends or relatives getting it as well. Yeah, that is something I've seen a lot myself on social media. Mm -hmm. I think my cousin just posted today. Um, she got her second second dose. Um, so that is a really effective tool. We know that social media is posting the selfies, having it more of a grassroots kind of approach to it. Um, do you know if there or does anyone here know if there's been any sort of a mandatory uh, vaccination program in either the native communities or in any any community in the United States? No, I do not believe there's any men, even in the military. Um, like I said before, roughly one third of military personnel and National Guard personnel have rejected it upon being uh, asked to get it. That is because they are not making it mandatory, even for military personnel. Okay, it's interesting because um, I know that with the schools, the public schools, typically you have uh, mandatory immunizations, but you have to get a waiver for religious purposes mm -hmm. or other reasons. 
um, as to why you are not going to get immunization. So I'm just I, I'm, I'm curious why they're not making the vaccine mandatory in workplaces or military like that, but having a waiver system where you can opt out. Um, yeah, that's just my. Well, my I think yeah. it's all about supply and demand right here. That vaccine. Some people have, there's some purports of the vaccine being harder to get than Coachella tickets. And people are literally sometimes waking up at 2.30 a.m. to get on Walgreens' website to register for a vaccine appointment. Yeah. So it, I think there's such a high demand that there is, really isn't an ability to make that requirement just yet. Maybe, for instance, in the summer, once we have it a lot more in supply. If I could chime into that, yep. I, it is not mandatory yet as far as I know, but definitely there's an emphasis on yet. I think, like Brian has mentioned, that schools require certain immunizations and a lot of jobs require an annual flu um, immunization. So with that, I feel like it's something we're going to be seeing in our near future because the coronavirus isn't just going to go away Mm -hmm. even after we necessarily reach herd immunity. There's different strains. Things are, the virus itself is mutating over and over, constantly trying to continue um, for it to spread. So... I think that we may end up seeing mandatory um, COVID vaccines in the yeah. future. I actually just got a text from my mom. Um, <laughs> she's a nurse in the schools and the public schools in Racine. So she said that uh, it's not mandatory in the schools or hospitals just yet because she works in both the schools and hospitals in Racine. Um, so it kind of confirms what we're talking about. Um, and there was nothing. Was there any sort of like a not mandatory, but a huge push for you, Henry, working in the in the hospitals to get any sort of a um, vaccine? Yeah. So I do. I work in a hospital as well. And there has not been a um, it's not mandatory yet in the hospitals. <laughs> I do think it will be um, soon mandatory for workers who have not gotten it. Um, but there is a huge, huge push to get it. Yeah. We get emails constantly um, just like saying to share your story um kind of like liam that um, was mentioning that yeah we have the vaccine selfies i myself have contributed to that um because i think that's very important to um broadcast that onto social media it's like yes it's nice to see um public and influential figures get it but who do you spend more time with who do you see constantly you see your close and you see your close friends and family so i feel like that definitely helps um develop that trust but yeah um in the hospital sake, we have definitely been getting pushed to to get it to help kind of contribute to society and the world to get back to um, normal, try to yeah. get back. And why, Henry, I remember you telling me about this earlier. Why would minorities be more hesitant to get a vaccine? Is there a history in the U.S. Uh, with that? There is a history in that. Um, that kind of goes back to the uh, Tuskegee uh, syphilis study. Um, so with that... Um, African-Americans were being pretty much denied treatment for syphilis. They injected them with syphilis. Um, doctors injected them with syphilis and kind of refused to, because they wanted, essentially the whole point of the study was to kind of follow um, how syphilis, how the disease works, how its effects are on the human body. And they had the treatment for it, and they just refused to wow. give it. So that has led to a lot of mistrust in these uh, minority communities with doctors. And ever since then, the mistrust still exists. Wow. So how, how, what is a strategy that can be used to really bridge this gap and 
reach out to those who are skeptical of getting a vaccine and reach out to people who are either elderly and make it easier for them to get a vaccine appointment or people who have pre-existing conditions. What are, I guess, the two things we really got to focus on then, how to address vaccine skepticism, especially in the minority communities, and two, how do we get people having trouble getting an appointment that much more to, to the end goal of getting that appointment? Um, if I can speak on that, I know um, to try to get people to appointment um, is definitely a struggle, for sure. Um, especially, you can try to find multiple, multiple methods. Um, so what's actually been really, really nice is that, um, especially with the older population, um, they may not be as technologically savvy. So like, yes, you can send um, text messages, you can call, you can send emails, but some of them may just not have any of that. Like, I don't know, my own grandparents are a little stubborn sometimes and just don't necessarily want to learn all this new technology. So in that case, I think that's where, um, like, mail handwritten letters to the houses come very in handy. Yeah, that is, yeah, and that's something that we have a lot of times um, in, like, other countries, developing countries, or even our own country with... Um, poor communities okay. that maybe um, don't have the, the, the infrastructure in place, the transportation uh, um, that gets them like the, the, the access to this, as you're talking about with the older community that maybe not aren't as technological savvy, and then also with the poorer communities that don't have that access. So And actually, uh, guys, Absolutely. we have a caller right now. Let me try to put them okay. through. second this is a new feature on our show so just okay. testing it out and actually uh, guys we have a caller right now hello hey uh yeah are we on yep uh yes. this is a caller from chicago can you say your name please sure this is bill from chicago love the show by the way uh, thank you bill thank you long time listener for three weeks so <laughs> The, um, the, the, the last topic was that you guys have brought up was how do we um, get folks who are otherwise hesitant to get the shot? And, and uh, Henry, I believe, said, t- referred to the Tuskegee Airmen uh, scandal, which was absolutely spot on accurate. But I think what you mentioned before about getting folks uh, uh, of similar demographics to show them getting the shot. So even the black community getting uh, high-profile um, uh, people in the black community and politicians to show that they're getting the shot, um, I think will help to overcome that, which is a, something you guys brought up before. Absolutely. And I think it's a whole combination. Uh, some people might even be more convinced with public figures putting themselves out there and getting the shot. And some people might be more convinced with family members or friends that they know and trust getting the shot too. So I think hitting that from both angles will be probably our best strategy too. No, I completely agree. Completely agree. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you. Uh, and we'd love to have you. Uh, thank you for calling in. Yep. Sounds good. So, um, Dave, do you have any uh, suggestions or ideas on this? What was the initial question again? Sorry, Liam. So we're talking about what we can do to forward this and address vaccine skepticism in some communities, particularly minority communities. But also, how do we get 
uh, people having trouble getting an appointment to these appointments? So, how are I saying this? I have a complicated solution to this. I see that as a really essentially an institutional flaw in our healthcare system that kind of ties into why minority groups, uh, as uh, Henry pointed out, have a skepticism towards and uh, really government involvement in vaccine or in vaccine distribution, just healthcare in general. One thing that I'm just very critical of uh, is that so far America hasn't necessarily had the best centralized approach to getting a, uh, towards just uh, distri- distributing vaccines. So an activist article by Dave Lawler uh, actually uh, specifically mentioned how America's vaccine rollout has been uh, very su- successful in the world uh, with a vaccine ratio of about 16.83 to 100 people. And uh, there are only two other countries that actually found that have a higher uh, vaccine rollout, um, Israel and the UAE, with uh, a vaccine ratio of 79.48 to 100 and 53.43 to 100, respectively. So one thing that I've noticed that these countries uh, tend to have in common, common is that there sen- tends to be a much more centralized healthcare approach, not really too similar to, uh, completely different from the United States, where we have a much more capitalistic approach to healthcare. So I think if possible, one thing we could do temporarily if um, Congress and President Biden were to uh, sign this into law would be temporarily have some form of single-payer universal health care in this country uh, until COVID-19, uh, until the pandemic ends. I think that'd be a good way to at least centralize the process and at least get more people who want to get the vaccine. Uh, I'll, I'll let them have appointments, if that makes sense. Kind of like what Brian talked about earlier with saying, like, well, who should get vaccinated, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And th- that is true in, in Israel, the by far the most successful in this vaccine. Over, over half of the population has gotten at least one dose of the Pfizer vaccine, which is the one used in Israel at the moment. Uh, and they all are all on an HMO and health management organization for every citizen of Israel. And that has been one of the key aspects of this because it allows them to reach out to these individuals and keep track of these individuals and their health status. However, I, I am a little skeptical of starting a whole universal healthcare system right now to just address this uh, pandemic and get this vaccine. While it is good with in countries with established universal health care, like Israel and the United Kingdom, it might be a little bit tricky right now just to establish this. They are expanding uh, the Affordable Care Act to reach more people. I believe the uh, House just passed a bill yesterday, and it is the American Rescue, uh, Rescue Plan Act of 2021 where they are expanding uh, the Affordable Care Act to subsidize care for everybody making 400% above the poverty line and below. So I think that would help uh, get people to appointments and get the information out and get people covered for this vaccine. But I'm a little skeptical about right now doing that. I think that might create a little bit more problems than good at the moment. No, I was going to say, yeah, I actually agree with you completely on that. I do know Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont actually did um, want to incorporate something in um, the budget reconciliation bill, uh, at least the Senate side, uh, concerning allowing everyone to participate in some form of Medicare for All. I was critical of that. Um, it was the logic he had, and I don't believe it uh, passed um, or was really introduced. 
but the logic he had was that if people want to get the vaccine, they should. And with people losing uh, their health insurance uh, because of job loss, uh, job losses in this country because of the recession and the COVID-19 pandemic, it doesn't really make sense for people to really have no health insurance uh, during the face of a global pandemic. I do think you bring up a good point, though. It is difficult uh, in this country because we had to find out what works for us. Because we could look at different countries and say that works for them, but can we really apply that in the United States? It's a difficult thing to do, and we still have a lot to learn because we do have good aspects of our healthcare system, but also some bad aspects. So I do think you bring up a very good point. And it'd be next to, to, to be perfectly realistic, pandemic or no pandemic at any point, it'd be next to impossible to implement a universal healthcare system with the political and social structure we have in this country right now. I mean, we are split based on some having public health care in the form of Medicaid, Medicare, and uh, some having subsidized health care in the form of uh, Affordable Care Act subsidies, and uh, some, most actually, having a private care through their employer or through their uh, personal um, self-employment as well. And to change that, you would need to get through with the American Medical Association, which is a very powerful organization and lobbying group that has blocked universal health care since Truman. And then you would need to get through all the individual employers and hospitals that are already set up for the system the United States has. And then finally, you would need to get through the filibuster in Congress and in the Senate in particular, which even when the United States Democrats had that 60 Senate majority in Obama's first two years, they just barely were able to pass the Affordable Care Act, which is still a hybrid. So it, it's it's perhaps would perhaps be more expedient in circumstances like this, but it the practicality of it I'm a little hesitant to say is realistic, given our it circumstances. Is, it is inevitably uh, going to be a difficult endeavor. I know um, when we had President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the AMA, uh, shot down his plan of national health uh, insurance system. Mm-hmm. Even though when Democrats had a filibuster for majority, like you said, they mentioned a uh, single-payer system akin to Canada. But that uh, was very progressive at the time. Mm-hmm. Back then, a public option, which is something that Democrats seem as like a good middle ground, that was seen as like a far-left idea at the time. That was one of the reasons why it never really got implemented, since they couldn't have 60 uh, Democratic senders vote for a public option. You did bring up a good, uh, good point, though. I know we talked about this last week with saying, should we keep the filibuster or not? We talked about that br- uh, briefly, but it is a question to be had. Uh, since not every uh, Democrat in um, the House and Senate, or even the presidency for that matter, really supports the single-payer system. But the Democrat Party as a whole does support that, if you look at um, po- uh, polls. But the people who are elected uh, so far seem to have over an emphasis on uh, improving the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And I guess, I guess since we're on the subject of U.S. and compared to other countries, I guess we can move on to back to the vaccine, but also saying what can the United States and other countries do to improve their vaccine rollout overall? Oh, and actually we have another caller on, so let's get that. Hello, hey, you are on there. Hey, it's me. Hi, uh, can you state okay. your name? Um, it's Eileen from Chicago. Hi, Eileen. How are you? I'm good. Um, yeah, I had a few thoughts about the vaccine distribution. Mm-hmm. 
um, and senior citizens. And one of the things that I think could have been done better, you know, the senior citizens, at least in our area, need to register online. And they, you know, they're, they're, they're in the group of 1B, everybody over 65. So I think it was probably not the most well thought out plan to have all senior citizens trying to figure out how to how to register online with very, very, very limited number of spots. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it would have been better to have um, a, a more tiered system of having people over 90 and then over 85 and then over 80 and also not having to go through the register online process because I think that's more, um, it's more difficult for a lot of people in that age group to try to uh, figure out how you get through those online spots. So just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. I, I do. It does seem that it would be helpful to try to minimize that amount seniors have to do by themselves online, because unfortunately, the, the matter of the fact is senior citizens aren't usually not very tech savvy. And that is a big, big roadblock here. I am a little skeptical about making smaller groups and place by place because there was already, at, at the start of the vaccine rollout, we saw very small groups being in the categories for approved vaccination. And our rollout was very, very small and step-by-step. Step. But once we started expanding those groups, especially to elderly, then we started really rolling with this. At the end of the Trump administration, we were roughly around 700,000 vaccines a day. Now we're at 1.5 million and on pace to get to 3.3 million by the summer. I think that is a large part in due to our expansion of people who are in these categories able to get that vaccine. However, there is another side to that where a lot of the Native American communities started it at elderlies, elders above 85, and then they tailored it down to, I think, 75 to 85, 65 to 85, and tell it down there. I, although healthcare workers need to be protected and they definitely can spread this more, it seems to me, though, that the people who are getting most sick from the COVID-19 have the highest rate of hospitalizations are the elderly. And 81% of deaths in the United States are from COVID-19 are from people 60 and older. So it seems to me we should be really prioritizing the elderly above all else if we're looking to decrease hospitalization rates and decrease deaths, which I believe are the two center things we must decrease. Yeah, it, but also making sure that it's easy enough for them to access mm -hmm. the vaccine. I, I, and of course, that, that is a big thing. I think there has to be a much more individual approach to this. Perhaps we need to help call to each elderly person too. And perhaps there could even be centers where the elderly should be able to go and work this out. Now, it, that is a little bit hard to do in a pandemic, of course. But physical places to go would, I think, really help the elderly understand how to get these vaccines. But still, the demand is so high right now. In Wisconsin, for instance, in March 1st, they're opening up to teachers, professors, graduate assistants, and so on. I'm a little skeptical. Personally, I am a graduate assistant, and I would like to get the vaccine as soon as possible. 
However, if I have to wait a month so that people who are over the age of 65 and people, for instance, even people teaching elementary school get the vaccine first, I'm fine to wait that time because there are much people who are much more important than me for getting this vaccine that are much more affected by this. Well, I think that's the point of the whole tier system is that you have the elderly placed above Mm -hmm. like um, teachers and other graduate assistants and whatnot. So I think they're just kind of continuing through the, through the phases now. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I think that kind of changing the topic a little bit when we talk about that the children of today are getting a less, um, you know, their education maybe is a little bit harmed because of the pandemic and going virtual and all this stuff, not being able to be in a classroom. Um, I think one thing the U.S. could improve on could be uh, maybe a little bit more tedious, but to divide this uh, tiering system into a way that uh, I think teachers should have been before certain certain people. Um, that might not be a very popular position, but um, I think that if you're going to look at and, and, and criticize the education system right now in the pandemic and not getting teachers into, into classrooms and kids into classrooms, yet you're not going to get them vaccinated. But, you know, uh, I, I just think that's, that, that's also a piece to this. The fact that healthcare workers were in the prioritized group and teachers were not is very uh, worrisome to me. I, I agree it is terrible what is happening for our education system right now. Te- kids must be in schools. That is the best way for education, especially students who are very young. This is a critical time for education and students with disabilities. Scheduling and education and having a routine for individuals with disabilities is absolutely essential, especially at a young age. So we especially need to get those teachers in too, along with the elementary school teachers. I, I agree with um, partially what you're saying there, Liam, um, mm-hmm. that it's very important to get teachers and um, vaccinated. But I think healthcare workers still need to have that importance. Oh, and I'm, 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 not, vac- saying, I'm not saying they shouldn't be at first. They should be first. But te- if you're having healthcare workers first, you should have teachers first as well, since the idea is both those populations can spread the virus more easily. So are you saying that they should be in the same, I guess, phase? Yes. Okay. I agree. Actually, if I may interject a point on this one, Liam. Yep. And I was going to say, point I was trying to make is I agree with uh, pretty much everything that was stated so far with really teachers um, as they should have a higher um, priority in this vaccine distribution list. But even then, like you said uh, earlier, that students are the ones being impacted at the end of the day through this. I was reading a couple of articles last week uh, about how students, like you mentioned, younger students and students with disabilities are essentially getting left behind with their education because um, learning online and distance learning, doing everything from home is not easy by any means. Absolutely. In most cases, it's really the parent that ends up teaching the, uh, the students even at my work uh, months ago, when I was having a conversation with my boss, she was just saying she never really realized how grateful she uh, was to have teachers in her life uh, until the COVID-19 pandemic started. Since she's essentially teaching uh, her daughter and son now everything there is to know in middle school. It's not easy by any means. So, yeah, I do think teachers should uh, have a higher priority. Much how that we really just need everyone to go back to school, really, because we are suffering uh, right now with educational gaps right now. 
And another large part is I'm very worried about at-home child abuse. We are in a very tense situation right now with high levels of stress. Children are at home, and so are many parents who are unemployed due to the pandemic. I, I, it, it is not an exaggeration to say that child abuse is probably, one, very underreported right now, because how are the children going to report that? They usually can't go many places right now. And two, with the high stress situations, no school and everybody in the same household, there are probably much higher rates of child abuse going on in the United States, which is an absolute tragedy, which is just another reason why we really need to focus on vaccinating teachers and getting kids back in school and back into the educational setting. And if I can add a little um, something else to that as well, um, some kids also rely on getting their food and meals at school. Yeah. And if now they're stuck at home, they're losing that opportunity to just feed and take care of themselves as well. And honestly, I guess going to the international stage, Europe, after the Christmas or after the winter break that they have for the schools, a lot of them shut down the schools again because of the third wave that was going on there. Now, U.S. has been a little hesitant because of worrying about the spread of COVID. But now that we have this vaccine and now we are really turning the gears on this, we really need to start getting all of society, look fo- focusing on getting first, first schools, but then especially all of society back to a normal state, back to running the economy again, because this is hurting everybody. So once again, the my t- top two priorities, if you're looking at just the disease, are making sure deaths go down and hospitalizations go down, which the COVID vaccine has been extremely, extremely helpful with. Because, like I said before, Israel has been probably the top nation in vaccination rates. Right now, Israel has uh, r- right now Israel has reported a study out of six hundred two thousand citizens, real world citizens, and many of them elderly, who have received both doses. Now, in this study, three point five out of every one hundred thousand people were hospitalized for COVID after getting those two vaccinations. Now, the rate for the seasonal flu for hospitalizations is 150 out of one, every 100,000 people. We have the ability then to make COVID-19 less deadly and less problematic than the seasonal flu with this vaccine. So we, vaccine will be key here. Have, and we, yep. I, I have a question on that, but I want to let you finish. No, I'm finished. Okay. Um, so for people that may be skeptical of the vaccine itself, mm-hmm. um, hearing what you just said of how it makes it less, uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine makes the, the coronavirus less deadly, less hospitalizations. Um, what do you say in response to someone who's skeptical that may say, like, what about the effects, the side effects down the road or things we don't know about yet? or, you know, side effects of the the vaccine itself, you know, for certain people. Anything to say about that? And 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 also with that, um, can the pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies be held responsible for any of those side effects that may come up? And actually, uh, Henry, would you like to talk about the vaccine skepticism on that front? I could. I can, I can definitely um speak for um 
because I've gotten the vaccine myself being a healthcare worker. And so I can speak on the side effects of just getting the vaccine. Um, there is nothing, no threat of getting um, the vaccine. You do experience some um, your typical side effects from getting the vaccine. You'll get maybe muscle achiness, you'll get fever, you'll get chills, you get fatigue. But this is standard of any vaccine that you've gotten. There is no um, death cases reported from getting the vaccine itself. There are also, there could be allergic reactions from it, but it's completely in the public. You can look up right now what the ingredients are of the vaccine. And if you're allergic to it, then that's an exception not to get the vaccine. But a lot of the skepticism about getting um, vaccines in general goes back to um, the anti-vax um, movement, which is a absolute um, disgrace and is really hurting the um, medical field and just public health in general. Because um, that kind of goes back to uh, Dr. Wakefield. Um, he came up with a study that consisted of 12 people and he claimed that there was a link between autism and vaccines. Turns out he completely made that up and he admitted that he made that up. And so that study got pulled that the um, he lost his medical license, rightfully so. Um, so it's just, it's very sad to see how many people believe that and how many people continue to believe that and the push for the anti-vax movement when the doctor it's, um, himself who claimed it said that it was completely fraud. And so, it, I mean, actually, mm-hmm. Sorry, Dave. Sorry, if I may interject a quick point on that one. I was going to say, historically, when we uh, did develop a vaccine, I know the vaccine for polio, it was widely celebrated across the spectrum. It did not matter what your views are. Everyone would be very proud of the government and the scientific community for uh, coming up with these vaccines. And there is such a thing as healthy skepticism. I encourage that. When it gets to the point that you refuse to believe scientists or healthcare providers or uh, healthcare, um, in, uh, healthcare individuals, you really are going to a point where you can't trust any science. And I just uh, agree strongly with your point, Henry. So it, but yeah, I did not mean to interrupt Liam. I apologize for that. Yep. And honestly, like they said, you, if you are skeptical... Be skeptical. It's all. It's natural to be skeptical, especially about something as scary as the sickness and as unknown to some people like vaccines and treatments for it. But I do think that you do need to get that medical advice. And if you are skeptical, that's fine. Just go on, look up the information, and talk to a medical provider as well to sort that out. And actually, we have another call in, so let's see who it is. Hello, you are on air. Hi, uh, this is Jerry from Glenview. I have a question. Yes, Jerry. Uh, my question is, um, you just talked about Israel, right? Yes. Uh, yes. But I w- do they have more control or mandating that their citizens be vaccinated? So in other words, in other countries, is it... Hi, this is Jerry from Glenview. I have a question. Yes. Yes. Um, my question is, you talked about Israel, right? Uh, yes. I'm sorry? Do they have more control or mandating that their citizens be vaccinated? So in other words... Uh, sorry, Jerry? Are you there? Is it, I think we lost Jerry. I, don't, I can't... Yes, I am. I'm on. Oh, sorry. Um, uh, it's, so in other countries, is it not the citizen's choice? 
it depends on the it depends on the jurisdiction and of the country. Now, looking at Israel, I well, in a lot of countries, there is much less vaccine skepticism yes. overall yes. as well. And I would say in China, sometimes it may be mandatory, but in Israel, um, let me see. I would say in Israel, it is not mandatory at the moment. It is very well pushed, and there's been a huge vaccination push by the government, and they are much able to reach out to their citizens and health management organizations as well with that system that they have. Another big point of Israel is that they have gotten the vaccine and those um, materials for that vaccine very early on. Israel was probably the nation that bought vaccines first out of any other. And that early buying of those vaccines and making those agreements was instrumental to the efforts right now. Are you, are you still there? Hello? I think there might be a connection problem. Um, so we're just going to... Thank you for calling in. Thank you for calling in, though. Okay, so I guess moving us to the international front as a segue, the Israel has been by far the most successful country in implementing this vaccine. Over half of Israel residents have gotten at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine thus far, and that is increasing every day. However, Israel did buy Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine perhaps earlier than any other country. However, they did pay about double per dose, what is that, about $30 USD per dose than other countries as well, to get those early agreements. However, that was very, very helpful. Country, the EU has had a lot of problems get supplying the COVID vaccine because they negotiated as the EU block country. Since they negotiated as a block country, it was much, there's a lot more bureaucracy involved, a lot more red tape involved, and negotiations took a lot longer. They didn't make an agreement with these vaccine companies until mid-October, roughly three months after the United Kingdom and the U.S. made their agreements. So that was a huge, huge failing for the EU and as well as some other countries, too. And I also, I would like to bring up the massive disparities between wealthier countries and low-income countries as well. Right now, 14% of the world's population living in the wealthiest countries have bought over 50% of the available vaccines out there. There is, a, in, there is an international organization called COVAX, which is a partnership between the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, Center for Epidemic Preparedness, and the World Health Organization to get these vaccines to lower income countries. However, because of supply restrictions, they've only secured 700 million doses so far for, all the, for over 90 countries that they are promising this to and can only agree to 20% vaccination of each country's population that they are partnering with. The goal is to administer 2 billion vaccines by 2022 for this company. However, there's also another caveat here where many countries, for instance, in Africa, aren't looking to get to herd immunity via vaccine until April of 2022. Almost 10 to about 
10 more months than the U.S. would. And that is the earliest estimate for Africa. So there's a huge disparity there as well. I think that this whole aspect of vaccine diplomacy is a really, really interesting piece. It's kind of like giving, you know, typical aid to countries, um, uh, more developing countries, countries that are maybe in a bigger crisis than other countries uh, through money or through supplies, things like that. But now it's through vaccines to help this global pandemic. Um, I know that India, I believe, India and the United States are mm -hmm. the highest um, in terms of production, manufacturing right now. Um, but even the country of India themselves have some of the poorest people in the entire world. Um, and they're having some problems with skepticism with, you know, getting it out to those people back back to our points about the infrastructure for the poor communities. Um, so these are all big issues that do need to be addressed. And like you said, it's going to it's going to delay it until what do you say, like 2024? Um, if I could direct it in the terms of another country, Mexico, um, I just thought this is really interesting. So Mexico has, I believe, uh, let me see where I can cite this. So I can get a citation later. But Mexico has one of the highest mortality rates for people that actually get COVID, the cases of COVID. They have some of the highest mortality rates of people dying once they get COVID. Um, but Mexico, their president uh, just instituted a policy of their own tier system where they are giving their vaccines to the poorest people of the country first. Hmm. So they're going to the rural places, the villages and the outskirts of Mexico um, to give the vaccines to the poorest people. It campaigned um, with his slogan, first, comma, the poor, um, prioritizing the country's most disadvantaged citizens using the vaccine as a kind of reparation for years of marginalization. Now, I think that is a very interesting policy. Um, I think that the heart is there. I think that he's got a, you know, a good motivation to do something like that. But as we also know, Mexico has some very populated cities. You know, Mexico City and other places um, have very large urban centers. Um, city dwellers that, um, as it quotes here from the Washington Post, who have endured the worst outbreaks. Um, and in many cases, the rural poor have been vaccinated even before the medical personnel in charge of administering those very shots. And I just think that taking a kind of a case study of, of Mexico in this whole, what country is doing this, what country is doing that, Israel's working, maybe the United States isn't doing as well, um, and, and Mexico's approach to it, um, in my opinion, is a complete failure. But that's just me. And that does sound like um, President Lopez Obrador from of Mexico. He has been uh, very, very much into supporting those low-income populations in Mexico. He is, many would say, a populist, but a left-wing populist as well. That is much more trying to connect with the people, especially those seen as marginalized in Mexico. He has uh, sold the equivalent of Air Force One for the Mexican president and is now flying commercial, for instance, things like that, and really try and connect, be the man of the people. Uh, that And those optics are very important as well. Looking at the international front, China has been much more vocal about lending support to lower-income countries in Africa, for instance. And in May of 2020, 
China's leader, Xi Jinping, said that the vaccine was a public good and promised to help Chinese leaders get the vaccine. Currently, China is administering is sending 1 million doses a week to Africa. Now, the U.S. has been making pledges as well. For instance, President Biden announced that immediately the United States would send $2 billion to COVAX to help with administering vaccinations to lower-income countries and another $2 billion between 2021 and 2022. So the U.S. is helping out, but that must be a lot more publicly known. That has to be much more publicly advertised, for lack of a better word, if we are going to keep the United States' influence throughout the world. Right now, China is trying to increase its influence and is trying to knock the U.S. out of its influence with other countries as well, which is a very, very dangerous game. Once again, not to get all Uncle Sam on everybody, But China is very much an authoritarian regime that does not respect democracy and does not respect democratic values and human rights as well, as we've seen in the Xinjiang region against the Muslim minority Uyghurs, which is who are facing cultural genocide at the hands of the Chinese government. And we have seen this at the suppression of democracy in Hong Kong going on right now. If we are going to have that model expanded out to lower income countries, that are still in the process of democratizing, that could really hurt freedom of speech and freedom of people to choose their own governments. So we need to make our efforts to lend a helping hand as partners to these lower-income countries, for instance, in Africa, much more well-known. Because Russia and China are really taking up the lead on that right now, and that could set a very dangerous precedent later on. Yeah, and you know what I've been thinking about when we've been do when I've been doing my own research on this topic, when we've been talking about it before the pod before the show today, um, I almost feel guilty. I feel guilty to think that I don't want China and Russia to get into these African countries, to get into these other um, maybe more developing countries and struggling countries to uh, get the their own vaccines out there, get their own aid in there. I almost feel guilty to to, to feel that way, just because we're then politicizing. Um, you know, saving people's lives, ending the pandemic, ending, ending all this, you know, complete tragedy that's been happening over the last year. Um, while I do agree with every word you said, um, I just think that's an, it's an interesting perspective to have um, when you kind of step away from it and be like, wait a minute, are, we're talking about international relations or are we talking about vaccinating people and saving lives? Just a thought on that. I think that's very much intertwined and it is absolutely essential to make sure that everybody, regardless of their ethnicity or where they come from, is protected and is secure. However, right now, the motivator, although this competition for who is going to be the top dog globally, who's going to have the most influence in these countries, yes, that is a motivation. But if it, at the end result of that motivation is getting more people in Africa vaccinated, then perhaps that's the motivation we need realistically. Because if there was not this competition, if China and Africa were not in Africa, in China, sorry, if China and Russia were not in Africa and all of these other lower income developing nations, then the U.S. wouldn't feel as pressured to be sending that aid to COVAX and be trying to get back on the good side of Africa. So although 
perhaps some of the motivations may be questionable at times. It is still a motivation nonetheless, and the end result is more vaccines to Africa. So, for instance, organizations that are international, such as COVAX, might want to capitalize on this relationship between the United States and Africa and on this competition in order to get the results of more vaccinations going to Africa and going to these nations. Now, of course, in and of itself, it's essential to make sure that these developing countries get the vaccine, not just for the right of upholding human decency and upholding the sacredness of every life, but also for just the well-being and health of the entire world. But also, looking at the politics of this, since it's a political show as well, we also have to look at the other implications of China and Russia becoming much more influential in the U.S. and having their model of government went out over democracy. And that is a real, very realistic conclusion to this, yeah. unfortunately. So there has to be much, much, much more press about what the U.S. is doing and much more vocal action about the U.S. going and lending a hand as partners to people of developing nations. If that does not happen, then we are at risk of losing the freedoms that ha many have fought so hard to gain and losing democracy that is fledgling throughout many, much of the developing world. Yeah. Some deep stuff there. So, uh, Dave, how, what do you think about that? So I'm actually glad you asked. Since I actually was going to ask if I could interject a point on that, but I thought you and Brian actually laid it, uh, everything out pretty well. I do think that we need to understand that Xi Jinping's uh, sole objective is to ensure China is essentially the dominant superpower in the world. And I would argue so far, he's doing a pretty good job. He knows how to undermine democracy in um, China and just to really ensure that it is an authoritarian uh, regime where he's leading. He's doing a good job of that so far. And he knows that, uh, that uh, the entire world literally re uh, relies on China and Chinese goods. So he knows that the, countries, um, the continent of Africa and various other developing countries that they don't really have much of a bargaining chip in this. They know that it, they need the vaccines, and if China is willing to give, the, give it to them, they know that they're going to be in uh, debt to the Chinese government. Like, Xi Jinping knows uh, what he's doing. He's not an idiot. He's a very intelligent man. And I just had to give him credit for it. Uh, he's um, ensuring that these countries are indebted to him. Then the long run, that they'll uh, have to give him something in return. And I can guarantee you it's just going to be... Um, Extending Chinese influence and sway over the African continent, and once he uh, never really succeeds in that endeavor, at that point we really are going to have to face the reality that China is objectively going to be uh, the sole superpower of the world, no longer the United States, which is a bit disappointing. Something we should all consider, because uh, like Brian mentioned earlier, is this international politics or just helping or combating uh, vaccine inequities in developing countries? Yeah, that's tough. I mean, it's like a it's like a Central American gang mentality um, when you think about it. I mean, China knows mm -hmm. it's a predatory. Th I don't know. It's it's a lot to unpack, but it's the reality. So, yeah. I would say right now it is essential that we focus on the United States and vaccinating the United States citizens as well. But we also must look at our standing and then 
in the world. Not just with America first, but if we're going to help America in the future, we also need to help out other countries right now. That is the real long-term investment we need to make. Investing in these developing nations with the COVID vaccine as partners, not as a charity case, which has been the unfortunate reality in the past, but as partners. That is how we cement and help not only ourselves, but other countries in a mutually beneficial relationship. So I guess the two things the U.S. needs to do is vaccination on the home front, but do not forget vaccination abroad with our allies abroad. So I agree. Any uh, final thoughts, gents, before we finish up here? Not for me. No, I think it's um, it's another it's another uh, dreary situation that we find ourselves in. But I think this one has a lot more uh, potential and a lot more optimism than the last couple of topics we've talked about. So that's true. We are looking up. Yes, it does yeah, seem that is definitely true. Yeah, you can you can yeah, see. Yeah, I the... uh, may have one final thought on this one, Liam. Yep. I was going to say, 2021 so far has been, from what I've noticed, a better year so far than 2020 has. And I do have hope that since we have a decline in COVID-19 um, uh, rates in this country so far, I just have hope uh, that if we all were to get vaccinated and we're all uh, able to reach herd immunity, we would get back to having our lives being normal before the uh, COVID-19 pandemic really became a thing. Because it's getting close to that one-year anniversary where... We essentially had to shut down and schools had to go online. So I guess that's really my final thought. If you'll just trust the scientists, trust your public health officials. And there is such a thing as healthy skepticism. But remember, at the end of the day, do you objectively know more than those individuals? So thank you for having us on, Liam. Thank you. And Henry? Dave, that was very well said. <laughs> thank you, Henry. I, I, was, I was snapping to everything you were saying. So I, I completely agree. We got to reach that herd immunity. We need to get those vaccines out and people need to get them. Absolutely. Thank you to everybody for tuning in to us today. And remember, once your timing line comes up, go get that vaccine. Thank you and have a great night.